Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The nostalgia problem. What is nostalgia? Well, it's a word that symbolizes a pang of regret or longing about a bygone time in one's life. However, it's also a word that's evolved to describe just about everything in the pop culture ecosystem. And it's not going away anytime soon. If it ain't broke, we can remix it and feed it back to ourselves. The first time I can remember encountering the word nostalgia was in eighth grade. I was sitting in an auto body shop in Tucson, Arizona, impatiently waiting for my mother's Nissan to be released back to us. My sister and I were poised on the edge of our seats watching a fuzzy rerun of Golden Girls on the requisite barely functioning TV that all car related businesses have to keep bolted to the wall in the top left corner of their waiting room. A woman came in and sat down next to us. She whispered, like we were in a library, Oh, I love this show. I used to watch it with my aunt. Man, what a rush of nostalgia. At that moment, I didn't quite understand the meaning of the word, but in subsequent years, I would learn it all too well. Miriam Webster defines the word nostalgia as a wistful or excessively sentimental yearning for a return to or of some past period or irrecoverable condition. The state of being homesick. Homesickness. Like it or not, neither of these definitions are accurate to what this word has become in the modern pop culture landscape. Today, nostalgia simply means, I recognize that, or I've experienced this before. It's a word with a colloquially positive connotation that means comfort food. It's also a synecdoche for an entire wing of the internet's output. Before we move on, I just got to stop you and just say, and this is probably counterintuitive to the entire thesis of this episode or it's just a prime example of what we're talking about but i fucking love the golden girls bro i I threw the golden girls on the other night and i just i just had a fucking hell of a time in fact i pitched the idea to a friend of the show and frequent music composer dad beats aka my friend kirk who anybody listening who used to listen to Nostalgia Cast would recognize as one of my co-hosts from that podcast, I pitched him the idea of doing a podcast called The Golden Boys, which is a podcast where the two of us watch an episode of The Golden Girls from episode one for every episode and then talk about it. I am seething. I know. I I didn't know what you were going to say. I am seething with rage right now. (laughs) That you would not ask me this. You would choose Kirk over me? No, I don't. I don't choose Kirk over you, obviously. Is fucking Nostalgia Cast around anymore? Did that I show get long abandoned? I am livid at the idea that you did not immediately come to me with this and was like, do you want to do a Golden Girls rewatch podcast called The Golden Boys? I am irate. I'm going to quit the show. To which you would like... You symbolically want me to have pitched this to you, but your actual answer to that would be like, I love the idea, but like, we got to really think about like, what things we actually want to focus on. Do we have time to be making a Golden Girls podcast where we're talking about the Golden Girls? Where we're already trying to like bank more episodes of the show. That's the response you would give to me pitching you that, that idea. You want the feeling of me having asked you first. You would have rejected it. That's not untrue, but I love the Golden Girls. I love the Golden Girls. It's not just the Golden Girls, but it's that specific type of late 80s and early 90s television that I watched religiously with my grandparents that is like the cornerstone of nostalgia for me personally. Like whenever I think of the things that define the aesthetic of my childhood and the things that most vividly return me to my childhood, it's the Golden Girls, Designing Women, Seinfeld, Murder, She Wrote, Matlock, Quantum Leap, just all the shows that I watch with my grandparents. I'm sure this already exists, but are you sure we want to go Golden Boys and not thank you for being a friend? That's good, too. What if you started 
two Golden Girls podcasts, one <laughs> called Golden Boys with Kirk and one with me called Thank You for Being a Friend. And, and we saw A-B which one. <laughs> yeah, we saw which one did better. A-B test which co-host is test better with audiences. Dude, this is how I get my ultimate revenge on Kirk is I'm going to fucking own. I'm going to be the most charming, sweetest, nicest co-host you've ever had. You're going to love co-hosting with me. I know you've already co-hosted like hundreds of episodes with me, but like, bro, you're about to get hosted. You're about to get fucking hosted. Let's do it. That's just two simultaneous Golden Girls rewatch podcasts where you're competing to be the co-host. The word nostalgia was originally supposed to symbolize and evoke a somewhat negative experience, a pang of longing, but has since evolved. It's been repositioned to have a buttery center, a warm wave of calming familiarity and safety. Or at least, that's what we're all supposed to think. I typically consider myself an ebullient and positive person, but the fact that global culture seems to be rapidly sinking into a black hole of pure, undiluted, feed-me-the-thing-I-know-I'll-already-enjoy-because-I-enjoyed-it-before really tests my daily ability not to plunge headfirst into trading in weapons-grade cynicism. The continental drift that the word nostalgia has undergone is emblematic of a drastic cultural shift that is as depressing as it is scary. Look, if you're not someone who's a member of the creative class, what I'm rambling about might not seem to be making much sense. So with that, please allow me to attempt to illustrate my point. As of today, nostalgia is the undisputed coin of the realm, culturally. Our fashion is echoes of what came before. Our music is literal remixes of songs that were popular 20 years ago. And our most popular movies are actually remakes of things that were popular sometimes as far back as 80 years ago. I'm looking at you, superhero industrial complex. It's almost an inarguable fact that new projects, ideas, and voices aren't given the oxygen that they need to survive and flourish because of an explicit corporate interest in revisiting, rehashing, and remixing existing intellectual property. And you know, the thing about that is, I mean, I recognize the cynicism of Hollywood. I'm not like blind to that or like a total corporate bootlicker at all. But I've always been a little bit of a defender of the idea of like, oh, there's just no new ideas anymore in Hollywood. And I've sort of pushed back against that for a lot of my adult life of like, they've been doing fucking remakes since the dawn of cinema. All the 1930s Universal Monster movies were just remakes of the 1920s silent films. That has been a thing forever. And there's not not new ideas. You just aren't going and watching the great original films coming out that just aren't the fucking Transformers and superhero movies or whatever. It's less of a Hollywood problem and it's more of a you lacking diversity of taste and interests problem. But that being said, it really has gotten bad in the last six, seven years. It's gotten to the point where I can no longer defend it. Like it's gotten bad, not just a fucking midnight in Paris like oh, every generation thinks the previous generation was better. Like, it actually is worse. We're going to get into this a lot, but it's rough, man. I think it's harder to get original things through right now, and hopefully that changes sooner rather than later. But to me, the thing that's more interesting about this discussion is before going into the actual room temperature of our culture and examining how dire it is or isn't, The thing that's really interesting to me is the fact that that word has so fundamentally evolved. Like, it just doesn't mean what it used to mean, pure and simple. And that is really fascinating to me. And I'm not grumpy about it. Like, language is made up. It's not real. It's a thing that we've all collectively agreed on. The reason these words mean what they mean is because collectively we all have agreed that that's what they mean. And we can agree that they can shift and mean something else. The rules of grammar evolve. The definitions of words evolve. The common uses and colloquial slang, sometimes in minority groups, ends up becoming a majority agreed upon thing. And so I have no problem with the fact that nostalgia is just a different thing than it used to be. I'm just fascinated by the fact that it is a different thing than it used to be. There are thoughts. Actually, I almost sent this to you, but then I was like, nah, I'm going to save it for the podcast. And maybe you've watched this already, but I'm hoping you haven't because... 
we were talking about this concept for this episode and we were chatting on the phone about some frustrations with like this sphere of philosophy. And I saw this and I was like, this is the pinnacle of what we're talking about. This is it. And I just wanted to play this. I wanted to watch this and we can live react to it. I just want to play this real quick. This is one of the ads that played during the Super Bowl. On Paramount Mountain, the stakes get higher. I mean, I, I can't get that thing up there. If it were a football, I'd be able to reach the top. What about a football-shaped head? We throw the child. Gutsy call, sir. Smart thinking. What? No, that's dumb thinking. He's not throwing Arnold. So I just want to pause it real quick. So we got it's a Paramount Plus commercial just for the streaming service. It aired during the Super Bowl. And the commercial is Sir Patrick Stewart, I guess, playing John Luke Picard. He's standing on like a vista of a frozen tundra and he's standing with Knuckles from Sonic the Hedgehog, Master Chief from Halo, Dora the Explorer, Lieutenant Dangle from Reno 911, Mike Rowe, Hey Arnold, 2D animated, like hybrid fucking live action animated. Hey, Arnold. You know what? That's not Mike Rowe. That's the host oh, of the Survivor. From- I love the fact, though, that they were like, no one's going to know who the host of Survivor is. Let's give him a trucker hat that yeah, says, says Survivor. Survivor. A hundred percent. That's what they did. And then also Drew Barrymore as herself. Noted scab. This is what she's been reduced to after betraying the working class. So all these people are just standing on a frozen tundra, hanging out, talking. Shut your face. Unless you prefer to freeze to death. I'm not going to throw a kid. <laughs> not built for the moment, I see. Oh, and a football player who I don't know, because I don't know anything about football. And then Jean-Luc Picard. Watch and learn. Jean-Luc Picard is wearing an old-fashioned 1920s football uniform, and he's going to throw Hey Arnold to the tune of Higher by Creed. And he just throws Hey Arnold against this mountain. And then Creed is performing on a rock. This is this is so cynical. This is the most unhinged thing I've ever seen. It's not even really though. Because so it's like gross. it's the corporate version of now that. It's like let's make something really crazy to get the internet talking. No, that's that's what I mean though. I don't mean unhinged like oh and then Peppa Pig is there. I don't mean unhinged like actually crazy like actually weird like it's totally cynical and it's totally just that style of marketing of like let's just do something really weird i just mean unhinged in terms of just the sheer levels of like all like just uncanny valley of cynicism where you've got like elderly sir patrick stewart singing creed and throwing hey arnold and he's probably like I don't know what the fuck is going on here, but they paid me. It's just like that thing that we're talking about for this episode. It's just that fucking concentrated into a black hole. The best part of it is that they're selling t-shirts of the next generation and the original series Star Trek uniforms. Oh yeah, the merch. In the hyperlinks beneath Beavis and Butthead coffee mugs. For, for some reason, underneath even though this video, they're not like, in there. Come for the lols stay for the consumerism you gotta wonder like who actually saw this commercial and was just like i love it it's all my favorite things like is there anybody who's still falling for this or is everybody just like so over the weird pandering and like just how surreal and cynical this is just take all these fucking characters and have them hanging out on a mountain and like oh get it it's funny and ironic you've got like fucking hey arnold hanging out with jean-luc picard and like that's crazy you never thought that would happen right you never thought drew barrymore would fucking hang out with master chief like is anybody falling for that anymore the answer is yes and not only are people falling for it but that's now like the status quo like if you don't do that it's like are you even really here it's disturbing 
When was the last time that you saw a movie in a theater that didn't cost $100 million and wasn't based on an existing corporately controlled property? The film industry almost exclusively produces blockbuster films aimed at the widest audience possible and constructed with as many safeguards as possible. And because of that, production companies, studios, and even agents are disincentivized to take risks. And what's the biggest risk possible? Something new. This is not just an issue with the film industry, however. The traditional book market? Oh, you better believe it's there. The comic book world? Oh yeah. Over 70% of the industry is controlled by the big two, aka Marvel Comics and DC Comics. Both of those behemoths aren't in the new ideas business. They're in the preserving the status quo business. Their work-for-hire contracts actively discourage artists and writers from creating new, vibrant characters because the companies would take full ownership. Even in the independent space, it's exceedingly difficult to get new projects off the ground and have them connect with a reader base without the support of an entity that traffics in what was. Speaking bluntly and in broad generalizations, all creative industries are becoming less adventuresome and our culture is suffering from it. It's less vibrant, less interesting, and less original. But here's the twist. It's understandable. Taking a 30,000-foot view... Of course this is the way things would go. What did we expect? That the new Hollywood movement of the 1970s would last forever? Permanent artist growth and experimentation on an exponential curve? That's just a ridiculous dream. One worth having? Maybe. But a dream nonetheless. Thinking about buying patterns, thought patterns, and just general human nature, of course people are predisposed to consume things similar to, or even in some cases, that are the exact same as the things they've consumed in the past. It's logical, especially if there's a weaponized system of consumption that actively encourages it, if not demands it. So one of the things that we were talking about yesterday, or maybe it was even earlier today, I think it was yesterday, is this hook that happens Dave, we haven't with musicians. spoken in months. Do you remember the conversation I'm talking about, though, with the music hook conversation? Yes, absolutely. Something that I have many thoughts about and thought about frequently. I'll set it up briefly and then let's uh, discuss further. So I was watching TikTok and I got three videos in a row that were all the same. Like, what if the Beatles covered Miley Cyrus? And then it's a musician making a cover that they've made of a Miley Cyrus song in the style of the Beatles? Or what if Danzig covered Helena by My Chemical Romance? And then it's you're listening to a cover of Helena, but you know, in the if you want to find hell with me kind of style, right? And I called you because I was freaking out, very upset over the fact that that premise is a false premise. Can you describe a little bit of what we talked about and then maybe share some of your thoughts? Yeah, so basically the idea, which is something that I have thought about frequently, is in reality what's going on there is something that's existed since the dawn of time or the dawn of popular music, I guess, which is artists are influenced by the artists that have come before them, the other musicians and artists and creators that they take inspiration from, that they admire, and they incorporate little bits and pieces of all those things and roll them up and come out with a new thing, which is original and unique, but it's also has all these little elements of these things from the past and you can recognize them. And so, you know, what happened is normally you'd have an artist, for instance, this artist Panda Bear, who came out with this album in the 2010s, which was like heavily influenced by the Beach Boys. But it was like the Beach Boys mixed with like experimental art pop. And that was what it was described as. And that's what every artist has ever done. And you've seen music critics you know, write reviews where they're just like the influences of the doors and mix with like this band or whatever. And that's just how music works. You just take existing inspiration and you mix it together into this new thing. But now the way that's packaged, it has to be funneled through this new way of thinking about the music. That's it, not just, oh, it was influenced by this thing, but rather you have to present it as if it was intentionally a mashup between two different artists because people are so addicted to novelty and recognizing things that now you can't get them to listen to it unless it has that hook to it. So you can't just say, oh, you know, I'm influenced by Danzig and also My Chemical Romance and my music is kind of like a mixture between those two things. Now it's like, no, what if Danzig covered My Chemical Romance? And that's the only way you can get people to listen to something because they have become so dependent on that level of recognition and like existing 
IP or whatever that now like it's not interesting if it doesn't have that element to it. The thing I hate the most about this is the fact that it does a disservice to the creative act. It's like so nakedly commercial that it inherently invalidates the artist in question. And I don't actually hate anybody individually that does the like, what if fucking Beach Boys, but make it fucking Britney Spears. It quantifies making music or just making art into like a strategy. And it makes a mathematical equation out of something, right? You know, there's loads of things that I was inspired by for my book. Mary Tyler Moorhawk, out now, today. It comes out today. One of them being the work of David Foster Wallace, another being the work of Mark Z. Danielewski, another being the work of Doug Wildey, another being the work of Matt Fraction, another being the work of Jeff Darrow, Jeff another Dunham. being the work of Shitaro Ishinomori. Mary like, Tyler Moorhawk was heavily inspired by the live puppet stand-up act of Jeff Dunham. It is all of those influences and other things, because it's me. So it's not just... What if Akira Kurosawa directed Batman? And sometimes creators say stuff like that, but they don't mean it literally. Like sometimes when you're talking about your work, you might say, I wrote this thing and it's like if Akira Kurosawa directed Batman, but you don't mean it literally. It's just like your little colloquial way of elevator pitching your thing to somebody in a conversation. But it's not literally one to one that. Whereas, you know, if you've ever used TikTok, you have this experience. And I think everybody's guilty of this. I'm sure even you, Dave, you know, complaining about this. I'm sure that you are also guilty of this, but you're scrolling by. 100%. If there's just like a song of somebody with like an acoustic guitar and they start singing and there's not a hook, you're just like, I don't fucking care about this. And you scroll by. But if it's got that hook and it's like, I wrote this song the day my dick fell off. I use that as an example a lot for some reason. Any Deep Cuts listeners, if you listen back, I say dick fell off a lot. I don't know why that is. It's maybe something Freudian, but you'll stop and watch because we've all been trained to consume media like that now. We've all been trained to just watch dicks fall off. Yeah, which yours actually fell off on December 4th. But the thing that's so frustrating about this conversation is that it is not a trend that exists as a trend in and of itself you know, a trend in absentia or something. It is a trend directly correlated to the fact that an entire generation of people across the globe have been trained to view things that are old as things that are comfortable, as things that make them feel safe, as things that they gravitate towards and spend money on. We've we actually talked about this forever ago of doing an episode about this topic, but I think it fits in here very well of like 80 years ago, 100 years ago, the great American dream, other than just having a middle-class income life, was to write the great American novel. It was seen as the pinnacle of culture. And then maybe 50 years ago, the pinnacle of culture was, I want to make a movie. You know, I want to have my life made into a movie. I want to write a movie. I want to direct a movie. I want to star in a movie, whatever the thing it is. Cameras and filmed narrative became inextricably linked to this idea that like that is the ultimate aspiration. And now I would argue that that has gone even further. And the great American dream is to be a CEO. The great American dream is to be the person not necessarily in charge of a thing, directly responsible for a thing or that has contributed to the thing, but the figurehead of the thing. And so Kevin Feige, James Gunn, you know, all of these massive Hollywood CEOs, they get outsized media coverage and people are constantly freaking out about them because they're the people in charge of the nostalgia meter, right? Fucking Kathleen Kennedy, fucking Dave Filoni, all these people are inextricably linked to these brands now that we are all suckling at the nostalgic teat of and need them to service us in the correct way, which is a strange fucking paradigm, man. Yeah, which nobody would have ever given a shit about the fucking like executive producer of something in that way, even 10, 15 years ago, certainly whenever we were kids. Like Kathleen Kennedy has been doing that job since we were kids. She produced the fucking Indiana Jones movies. None of us were just like Kathleen Kennedy, the fucking architect of Indiana Jones. Like nobody cared about that. We cared about the actors. We cared about the writers, the directors. Nobody was like the fucking what, what, what the fuck is that title? You know, you could argue that George Lucas was the first person to kind of do this in that way. Right. You know, they had like Bob Iger and Robert Evans and all these big studio heads. 
but they weren't famous in the way then that they are now. Like the movie moguls, you know, Jack Warner and whatever, like Carl Lemley, they were famous, but they weren't figureheads in American culture in the same way. Yeah. You know, even to the degree that like there's a new genre of movies that have popped over the past five, ten years called, you know, business porn or whatever, where it's like, you know, the Hulu series about Elizabeth Holmes and the Blackberry movie, Social Network, the Flaming Hot Cheetos movie. Which, that doesn't sound real. I shouldn't be able to say the Flaming Hot Cheetos movie, (laughs) and everyone knows what I'm talking about. They made a movie about Michael Jordan's shoe contract. The brands that exist in our country are so omnipresent and so oppressive that we have now dedicated hundreds of millions of dollars into exalting the people who are the figureheads and ambassadors for those brands, which is insane. There's not just one Steve Jobs movie. There's like five Steve Jobs movies. We Crash? We needed a movie about the WeWork guy? It really feels like a frog slowly boiling situation where when you really stop and think about it, you're just like, Flaming Hot Cheetos movie. We're in idiocracy already. <laughs> we are a hop, skip, and a jump away from Buttfuckers, which it, if anyone doesn't remember this name of the chain and restaurant that Fuddruckers turned into. Yeah. And the thing that they don't tell you is that that doesn't just happen overnight. You're not just suddenly like, oh, the fucking world has become an idiocracy. It's like one day you just wake up and realize that you've been in it for five years. So what's the solution, you must be asking? Well, well, other than the obligatory call to arms of supporting independent artists and voting with your dollar, for me, there really is only one solution. And it's cheesy and hokey, and I can't believe I'm going to type these words, but be the change you want to see in the world. Really? I'm like pitching a GoBots movie tomorrow. I'm going the other way with it. And insert poorly animated PBS-style sparkle rainbow here, please. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. I love some of the corporate slop that these massive multi-continental machines pour down our collective throats. My life would be a lot easier if I didn't obsess over lightsaber wits or get into arguments with my friends about the proper shade of red that Superman's cape should be. But I have to speak my truth, I suppose. I, too, am part of this system. And, as such, I have been infected with the same disease that we all suffer from. The nostalgias. Do I wish I could be outside of this oppressive chokehold? Sure, why not? But the phrase, choke me daddy Iger, has definitely been uttered at least threes of times this week. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I'm right there with you. In fact, I might be even more guilty because I'm just going to be fully transparent just for the sake of due diligence and just getting it all out there. And this is not a joke, but I run the official nostalgia Facebook and Instagram channels. My hands are blood. I'm not even going to acknowledge that. I'm moving on. But I'm also an artist who wants varied and weird things to exist. So what did I do? Well... Frankly, I made a book that's metatextually about this, and if you squint, it's literally about this. Mary Tyler Moorhawk is a project that took me close to four years to complete. I wrote, drew, colored, and lettered it, and also worked with two amazing collaborators, graphic designer Mike Lopez and photographer David Catalano. The book is probably unlike most that you've seen. It's separated into two halves. The first half is an action-adventure comic that follows a family of super science adventurers as they must race against the clock in order to attempt to stop a supervillain from an alternate timeline from creating a spatio-temporal holocaust. The other half of the book is a prose novel presented in the form of zines and magazine articles from a hundred years in the future, where we follow a journalist named Dave Baker who's obsessed with a TV show that was adapted from the previously mentioned comics as he attempts to track down a reclusive creator of the eponymous character and the show in question. You can probably see some parallels between the topic at hand and the meta-themes of the book. For me, I wanted to make a project about the feeling of loving older media, being obsessed with comics and film, and spending all my time laboriously researching creators who have had an audience that totals in the grand number of 17, while also hungering for the new. 
I wanted to create a work that captured the echo chamber that happens when you're exclusively looking inward culturally, which is something that seems to be happening more and more with every passing year. I wanted to find a way to dissect, deconstruct, and examine the simultaneous experiences of living in an oppressive system, knowing it's oppressive, and still finding comfort and love in it. I wanted to excavate just how scary and what a pressure cooker that can be. So, naturally, I made a comic about a preteen girl adventurer. Life ain't nothing without discordant tones, am I right? So, I feel like this is also a theme that has showed up not just in my book, but also in this podcast in various forms. Like I kind of read in that little description, you know, half the book are these epistolary zines from a future that could be and a zine magazine publication called Physicalist Today, where we see the world that our journalist character Dave Baker is living in as this strange short form newsreel footage is the only thing he really consumes in a culturally permissible way. Everything else, like people have kind of forgotten the nature of story. People have kind of moved away from the idea of collecting things. It's literally illegal to own physical objects. So the process of kind of thinking about that future and writing about that and processing the weird cultural hellscape that we're currently living in was a lot. But I will say that I think some of those themes come from conversations that we've had where I have been kind of mulling over a topic and then almost like the first draft of Mary Tyler Moorhawk is a conversation with you that then I later write down and kind of restructure my argument or discard things that I had said in our conversations that I didn't really believe, but I was exploring. Does that make sense? The fuck were my writing royalties? This is what breaks the show. You just sue me. Obviously, the scale of time is going to be lost on the reader, but this thing you've been working on has been hovering in the background radiation of our lives since like 2017. The joke version of this was something that you just mentioned to me when we worked together, which was 2017. It evolved from there. Actually, somebody pointed out, which I didn't know because it's been four years and I go back and listen to old episodes But I haven't listened to some of the older stuff in a long time. But apparently, according to a listener, you talk about Mary Tyler Moorhawk in episode one of the show. Oh, my God. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know this, but I'm just saying this for the audience. This is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. It is without a doubt the hardest fucking thing I've tried. And I'm very excited that it's finally coming out and that, frankly, it's getting really a positive response. I'm kind of over the moon about that but legitimately i was like this might break me i might die making this next thing i do will not be that hard the next thing you do is just stick figures yeah you try to like make an excuse for it you're like it's a formalist way of pushing back against the classical ideas no i i just i'm fucking broken i'm i'm burnt out sorry guys it's just stick figures this time i'm sorry You joke, but like 100% that is something I would do. If the book is just called comics, but in parentheticals underneath that, but without any craft, and it's just like stick figures and swear words. God damn it. Yeah. I don't know, man. I think this book, it's the most personal thing I've ever made, but I also think that it wouldn't be what it is if we didn't talk so much. You know what I mean? Like so much of the book is reacting to the ongoing ennui or existential problems that we were both having during 2020, 2021, 2022, you know, trying to figure all of this bullshit out. And also, you know, you didn't think it was good. So that's why I had to make it because fuck you. I said that in the discord the other day, the whole thing started with you pitching basically this pun. And I hate puns. That's mischaracterizing it because like, For the most part, any idea you have, I like. But there's this one little specific subgenre where you come up with a pun thing and it's like, I hate it so much. And you continue to pitch it to me on purpose because you know that I hate it. And so this started out as a thing where you were pitching this idea of this pun. And I was just like, no, no, I don't I don't like it. And. I think somewhere in that equation, that actually pushed you to continue to work on it and push past the punness of it and make it an actual real thing. So in some ways, I deserve a lot of credit for helping you to bring this to fruition. (laughs) 
I mean, I think there's a part of that that is true. And then there's a part of that that is not true that I'm playing up for comedy. But then there's another part of that that's kind of true. You and I agree on like almost everything. So when there is something that we don't agree on, I'm constantly like, but why? What is it about this that you don't like? Because I think this is hilarious. And the fact that you don't makes me really upset because it's funny. Why do you not think this is funny? I hate puns and metaphors because my brain just can't process them. I think the other component to this, too, is that the conversation at hand surrounding the way that our culture has started to produce and consume ideas and regurgitate ideas is inextricably linked to taking really dumb things seriously because most of these ideas now are coming from gutter mediums like comics and they're being adapted from video games and animated tv shows and things that were designed to be like one-off commercial ideas at a very processable goofy level that are now trying to be elevated to be like do i know that the core of batman ever really could sustain the dark knight i don't know It took 80 years of people hammering on that idea to make it ultimately what it became, right? A perfect example being Barbie, right? Barbie's a great movie. I loved that movie. It was like my favorite movie of the year. But it's also just as much a rebranding exercise as it is a feature film. And that's why it's so smart. Because Barbie has a very damaging track record on the image of femininity that it has sold to the American population and has given generations of women body issues. But if you saw that movie, I don't think you'd get on any of that. You'd just be like, isn't Barbie great? She's an icon. She's like helped people be progressive her entire time. Almost expressly, that is the idea of the movie. Like it glosses over so much stuff, namely that the movie tries to make you think that Barbie was created by a woman named Ruth Handler. And she wasn't. She was created by a woman named Ruth Handler and a guy named Jack Ryan who got 1% of the royalties for every doll sold and became a millionaire overnight and like developed a sex addiction and they booted him out of the company because of that. And Ruth Handler went to prison for embezzling. And then he became a super But spy. the movie glosses over that. Isn't that weird that he has the same name as the fucking character? But you, you get what I mean though, of like the way that these ideas are constantly being flattened by this experience is to me very interesting, but maybe I'm the only one. In the strange and dystopian future of the prose sections of Mary Tyler Moorhawk, there's been a massive cultural and political upheaval which has led to the banning of physical objects. And with that, much of our cultural history has been lost, especially the connective generational tissue that is pop culture. Much of the culture has gone underground, both metaphorically and literally. Collectors and artists meet in secret basement swap meets, where treasured items from our past are bought and sold illegally. Current day America's addiction to nostalgia is profoundly disturbing to me. The points I've laid out above should prove that, but the one aspect of this conversation that seems both glaringly obvious and not nearly talked about enough is that with every piece of nostalgia bait that's produced, America seeds ground on the global stage. What does that mean? It means for a long time, we've been the world's dominant superpower. However, through the cynical levers of capitalism, record profits and short-term bargaining have left our country exporting nothing. Our agriculture and livestock industries have largely gone to Mexico. Our manufacturing of automobiles, textiles, and technology fled to China and Japan. Literally the only thing America produces is culture. We export a new season of The Myth of American Superiority, 90210, and The American Dream, The Next Generation, through our movies, TV shows, musicians, and cultural signifiers. However, if everything we produce is aimed at being recursive and insular, that conversation is going to cease being a globally aspirational one and evolve into something stale, pale, and frigid. The prose sections of Mary Tyler Moorhawk chronicle what it's like to be a collector or a physicalist in a future that's forgotten the past and can't dream of a future. The idea of collecting and preserving the past is an act of rebellion in this future. But here's the thing. Is it really? Or is it yet another prison? A panopticon keeping these individuals locked into a mentality of docility. Who knows? Maybe that's what we're living in right now. Well, 
I guess you'll have to read my book and find out. Because Lord knows the real world certainly ain't gonna be escaping the nostalgia problem anytime soon. Air horn noise. Beep, 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 beep. Beep, 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 beep. What you just said reminded me of this seemingly prescient interview that Frank Zappa did in the 1980s. The thing that sets the Americans apart from the rest of the cultures in the world is we're so fucking stupid. This country's been around for a couple hundred years and we think we're hot shit. And they don't, you, we don't even realize that other countries have thousands of years of history and culture and they're proud of it. And when we deal on an international level, you know, with uh, foreign policy and stuff like that, and we try and go in as, you know, a big American strong country and all that stuff, they must laugh up their sleeves at us because we are nothing. We are culturally nothing. We mean nothing. We're only interested in the bottom line. You know, every other country has their own art, their own music, their own theater, their own drama, their folk dances, folk songs, folklore, and it means something to them, and they're proud of it, and that's their ethnic heritage. We have Levi's, we have designer jeans, we have hamburgers, we have Coca-Cola, we have REO Speedwagon, we have Journey, we have this one, we have that one. And then we go out there and we say, yeah, but we also have neutron bombs and poison gas, so maybe that makes up for it. I mean, it's really kind of sad when you evaluate it that way. I can't say it much better than Frank Zappa, dude. That's pretty on point. Just going back to the idea of this book culminating from conversations or whatever. And we talked about this a lot in the moment. But personally, I also just had a really big epiphany or like a large galvanizing moment when we went and saw Ready Player One. And I really think that that film in particular, I wasn't some huge like sucker for nostalgic content before that. But I think that movie in particular just totally broke the spell for me of nostalgia marketed at millennials where it was just so nakedly cynical so over the top so like lacking in any connective tissue that justified the usage of these nostalgic properties and trying to like bring them all together into some shared universe that it was like putting on the glasses in they live and seeing something for what it really was and just in that theater just being like this is just like a commercial. I'm aware that many movies and cartoons and things like that are commercials. Like the cartoon series in the 1980s, like He-Man and Transformers were literally commercials for toys. And, you know, to a certain extent, Japanese tokusatsu shows like Kamen Rider are literally commercials for toys. I get that. But I think that it's like a symbiotic relationship between a business that needs to advertise a toy line and creators who are having a lot of fun with making that commercial and put way more work into it than it deserves to be to the point where it's just genuinely entertaining in and of itself. Whereas Ready Player One was not that. That part of the equation was missing. And it was just literally a commercial that it seemed like everybody was just going through the motions of assembling. Like Steven Spielberg directed that movie and it did not feel in any way like it had a fraction of the magic of your typical Steven Spielberg science fiction adventure film. It had none of that. It just felt like a guy who was hired to do a job and he just put a camera out and did it. And that was like a real galvanizing moment for me watching that movie where I'm just like, Jesus, like we've broken through some kind of barrier now and they're not even pretending anymore like, this is not a commercial. Yeah, and it's doubly weird in that example because it's the person who created, like, half of the iconic images in American cinema homaging himself. It's so weird. It's not like, oh, man, I'm a young up-and-coming filmmaker and I just really want to pay tribute to the movies of the past. It's, I'm the great one. Remember. Yeah. But then also simultaneously doing a shot for shot remake of scenes from The Oops. Shining. They've put like an orc in the scene. Similar to that Paramount Plus commercial we watched earlier. There's no connective tissue to it. It just feels like a random mishmash of like, oh, you recognize this. You recognize this. Isn't it cool that those things are together? You would have never thought that, right? Whereas, you know, something like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, you know, utilizing like classic public domain characters in kind of a similar way 
taking these characters. You know, there's a certain part of the book where they go to like the island of Dr. Moreau and one of the creatures on the island is just Rupert from the book series and cartoon series, Rupert. And he's taking all these characters and putting them together. But it all feels like it slots into place and there's this cohesion to the story he's trying to tell and utilizing those characters. There's interesting choices behind why he used the characters and it kind of feels like this cohesive thing that clicks and it feels like this new thing. Even though he's just mining these old characters, it clicks and feels like this new thing. But there's no cohesion in that movie and there's no cohesion, I think, in this like modern idea of what nostalgia is it's literally just like can we put as much recognizable things together as possible to like maximize the efficiency of like firing your endorphins in your brain so uh now that we've talked about the powerful cynicism of a media system that is purely interested in mining audiences for the bottom line which dovetailed into just what was nakedly an ad for your own book what are your final thoughts? My final thoughts, dearest Spandrew Spice, are that Mary Tyler Moorhawk is available wherever books are sold because I, too, am oppressed by the system of capitalism and need to get out from under the, the jackbooted heel of my landlords. So I need money. And also, I spent five years working on this book, maybe since 2017. I don't know if that's what a listener said. The book is like Infinite Jest meets Johnny Quest. If that sounds cool, you can pick it up wherever books are sold. It's available today. This book is like if Johnny Quest covered Infinite Jest. What if David Foster Wallace created Johnny Quest? Okay. Another description that I said the other day, which was why I thought of that example, and I really think that maybe it was really birthed out of a lot of the conversations we had that night, is there are some parallels between the world that you've created and the world of Ready Player One. But whereas in Ready Player One, it's just like, the whole universe is built around this idea that like nostalgia is awesome and the movies from the 1980s and 1990s are just really cool. And so in the future, they're just obsessed with him. And there's like really nothing that's being said about that. And it's supposed to be like a satire, but then it's not because the movie and book are just blatantly glorifying nostalgia. There's no statement being made about that. It's just like, there's this video game where you can go in and you can be any character from anything you love and it's awesome. And like we're kind of pretending like there's a satire of like getting lost in a virtual world and not being in the real world. But then the whole movie just spends an hour and a half glorifying that. And I described Mary Tyler Marhawk as Ready Player One if it wasn't written by a talentless hack. I remember us going to see Ready Player One together with one of our mutual friends and I don't think they disliked it as much as we did. But I do also remember, I think that was the day that we realized every movie that we had seen together was bad. Like anytime we went to a movie with our partners or alone without each other, they were great. But if you and I end up in the theater at the same time watching a movie together, it will be bad. Yeah, to the point where it became like a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like, we don't want to go see movies together because it will make the movie bad. I remember we went to go see a sneak preview of Dark Phoenix, the last of the Fox X-Men movies. One of the worst movies I've ever seen. It's so bad. And I remember standing in line waiting to go see that. And I don't think you had gotten there yet. And I was just like keeping our place in line. You showed up and then the guy behind me was like, so you think this is going to be good? I love the X-Men. And I looked at him and I said something to the effect of, no, have you seen the trailer? And then he like got crestfallen and you started like laughing. You started laughing because I like broke this guy <laughs> by just like telling him like, no, the movie's going to be dumb. And you were like half laughing at this guy not knowing that Dark Phoenix was going to be bad and half laughing because we were both there which meant the movie was going to be bad. Like, it was a certainty because we were both standing yeah, there. Yeah, it's like, you don't know. You just don't get it. You don't get what this means, that we're standing here. We are the two horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah, my final thought is, 
Mary Tyler Moorhawk, available now wherever books are sold. Spandrew, what are your final thoughts? Yeah, we've discussed the nostalgia problem. We've discussed what it means and why maybe it's gone in that direction. And you kind of talked about your solution, which is just like making original new things. I also think that a component of it is, and the thing that I think gets left out of the conversation a lot. It's not to say that big corporations buying up IP and cynically remarketing the same ideas to us over and over again aren't largely at fault. There is something to the idea of putting billions of dollars into a marketing machine that kind of like collectively forces us to consume a certain type of media. But I also think that on the other hand, the market is dictated by the consumer and the things that we choose to watch and not watch in the macro, we're going to steer what media and art is as a collective in a certain direction in a for-profit capitalist society, for better or worse. And I think that a lot of people, they speak out of two sides of the mouth when they talk about these things because they talk about like, oh, Hollywood is out of ideas and you know they don't make original movies anymore. But then whenever the original movie comes out, nobody goes to see it. Or if we're talking about a smaller scale, the way that the social media algorithm works is based on your behavior. The things that you see are dictated by the way that you interact with social media and the fact that you genuinely do only watch the videos where they say it's fucking Danzig covering My Chemical Romance. But if it's just a really good song that somebody wrote that doesn't have a gimmick to it, you just scroll by. So some of the onus is on us. Whenever an interesting original idea for a movie comes out, go fucking see it in theaters. Be a little bit more patient with your social media scrolling. Stop giving your all of your attention to fake staged fight videos on social media. Attention is currency. Pay a little bit more of your attention to some original ideas and more people will make more original ideas. You can mostly blame big corporations, but a little bit of it is on us. Those are my final thoughts. On that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com. Go buy Mary Tyler Moorhawk wherever books are sold. Spandrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can't find me on social media because I don't use social media, but I actually do. I'm lying and uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to fake out. I actually am on social media, and I'm going to tell you later which socials I'm on. Uh, But if you want to get Andrew's book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye, you can go to dapricerights.com. But for today and today only... I would say if you were planning on going to dapricerights.com and picking up Andrew's book, Deadbolt A of Private Eye, save your money and go to heydavebaker.com or wherever books are sold and get Mary Tyler Moorhawk. I know all of you are clamoring to buy Deadbolt AI Private Eye, but just today, save your money and give it to someone who needs it more than me. Somebody who's really hurting for people to buy his book. You can follow us on social media by going to Facebook and searching Deep Cuts Podcast. You can join our Facebook group, the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where we talk about the show and make memes and other cool stuff. You can join our Discord server, bit.ly.com slash Deep Cuts Discord, where we talk about the show, make memes, play games and other stuff. Currently, I'm in like a long form argument with everybody because whenever I worked in retail, I actually liked it whenever people would like mess up the store because it gave me more busy work to do, which made the day go by faster. Whereas most people get really mad about customers leaving stuff in random spots. And I'm like defending my position and pretty much everybody else disagrees with me. You can follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can follow me on TikTok at Dead Boy Detective. And you can get the book that I co-wrote, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, in stores now. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.